0: I want you to turn to John 13 this morning. John chapter 13. And we're going to continue our series called Growth Steps. This is the second to last installment of that series. We'll finish up next week. And uh, then we'll begin, be beginning a series through the book of Genesis. I'm really excited about that. I'd encourage you to be faithful this summer in your attendance um, to, to hear what God has for us in the book of Genesis. And I think you'll be blessed by it mightily. Uh, but for today, we're going to be on growth step, I believe number five, which is the growth step of serving in ministry. Serving in ministry. In 2016, in a study was done by an institute of research that specializes in observing the trends of volunteerism and giving in America. And here's the conclusion that they came to. Fewer Americans are engaging in their community by volunteering and giving than in any time in the recent past. What's sad about that statement to me is that the research that was done that came to this conclusion was done well before COVID and the pandemic, which we all know affected a lot of these things. And so what this Institute of Research is saying is that for the average American, of which we all are, the script that is written in our culture is that we do not volunteer or give nearly as much as even our own ancestors have. Now, I don't know about you, that may not be very surprising to you as you look at the broad culture. I mean, it should it be surprising to us as our culture revolves more around convenience and grows in its prosperity, that it's more common for people to be willing to give a dollar than to give an hour. I'm not surprised by that. Many of you aren't either. You can look back in times past, even in this this church specifically, that there was a different spirit of volunteerism in days gone by. I'm surprised as I've looked in past documents of our church and seen things that talk about how large events in our church were completely run by volunteers with teams and structure and things like that. And as I look back on the pictures of the church not that this is a bad thing, I'm just saying it's a good thing about the spirit of volunteerism that has been here is that you see more pictures of volunteers carrying out ministry than you do staff people. It's amazing uh, the amount of things that even in our specific church that were made possible because of very dedicated volunteers. But I think we'd agree that in a lot of senses, though I'm not criticizing the culture of our church, I think the broader culture of the church globally is that volunteerism is on the decline. I think because many Christians are following the script that society has given them rather than the example of Jesus. I think that it's more common for Christians to come to church with the desire and the expectation to be served than to serve. And that's not a new problem. It goes all the way back to the times of Christ. This morning, what I want you to see in John 13 is that in even his own day, Jesus broke the script. He went off script Because in the very moment when Jesus should have been served by others, he goes off script and serves undeserving people in the most humble and practical way. And I pray as we work our way through John 13, verses one through 17, that God will find a way to speak to every one of us about our role of serving in the local church. The passage breaks down into three sections that we'll get to in just a minute after we read. It talks about the humility Jesus demonstrated, the cleansing Jesus pictured, and the pattern Jesus gave. Join me, if you would, in reading John 13, and let's begin in verse number one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world and the father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, He riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith unto him, he that is washed, Needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every wit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, ye are not all clean. So after he'd washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said to them, know ye what I have done to you? You call me master and Lord, and ye say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither he that has sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. In verses one through five this morning, I want you to see how Jesus demonstrated what I call culture defying humility by washing the disciples' feet. John's very intentional on in how he writes this because in verses one through three, John goes out of his way to show us that in this moment, Jesus had every right to be served rather than to serve others. In verse number one, he tells us that Jesus' hour of his death had arrived. And I don't know about you, but if death was on my mind, serving others would not be on my mind. John says at the end of verse number one, I love, it's such beautiful wording in the gospel of John, that Jesus had loved his disciples well from beginning to the end. That's what I want my testimony to be, don't you? That I've loved God's people well. But think about this. If Jesus had spent his whole life, as John says, loving his disciples well, serving them well, sacrificing well, of all moments, did he really need to serve them again? After all, wouldn't it be appropriate for them to love him in this moment? Verse 2 points out that Jesus knew that his betrayal was coming. It says that it was already at this moment that the devil himself had put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. Verse number 11 shows us that Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him. Now think about that. In the moment of one of Jesus' most profound and culture-defying moments of ministry, one of the very people he served was the man whom he knew would kill him, betray him. And yet Jesus washed Judas's feet the same as Peter's. And then verse number three, John points out that, and this is such a stark statement of the deity of Jesus. Don't let anyone tell you this nonsense that the Bible in the New Testament never claims Jesus to be the son of God. Verse number three is quite clear. It says that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he was come from God, and he went to God. Jesus, in that moment, knew that he possessed all authority from God. Now, isn't that an odd statement to put before the story of washing the disciples' feet? because washing feet didn't demonstrate his authority. I think John was getting us to read this and ask ourselves this question, is it fitting for the king of kings to serve? Shouldn't it be the other men who are washing his feet? Shouldn't they be bowing down at his feet? And then in verses four through five, John describes the scene almost in slow motion. There's a lot of detail in verses four through five. And I think the reason John writes this way is because he wants us to really consider what Jesus is doing. He describes it in so much detail. Why? Why would he do that? Because John recognizes and he wants us to recognize that what Jesus was doing was off script. It was culture defying. And he focuses on two different aspects. He focuses in verse number four that Jesus laid aside his normal clothes and garments and clothed himself with the apron or the towel of a slave in verse number four. He uses this idea of clothing. He says, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And I think that many biblical authors pick up on this idea of Jesus's humility being demonstrated by the clothes he changes out of and the clothes he takes on. It reminds me of what Paul says in Philippians 2, In his poem on the humility of Christ, that we'll read at the end of the message, where he says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And here's the clothing term he took upon him the form of a servant. Verse number five, John focuses on how Jesus set aside his rightful place as Lord and he dons the task of a slave. In slow motion, he describes how Jesus pours water into a basin and he begins to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the the apron that he was wearing. I don't suppose this is new information to anyone that's gathered here But I think it's important for us to review the fact that washing one another's feet was a task no dignified person would do. We know that the Bible doesn't condone slavery, but it existed in a world in which slavery was a real thing. Many slaves were paid servants. They were maids, if you will, hired household hands, And what's interesting to me as I read about this, that the task of washing someone's feet in the household was a task that even a self-respecting paid slave wouldn't do. A Jewish slave wouldn't do it. In a Jewish household, it was such a demeaning task that Jewish slaves would, would insist that Gentile slaves would do it. I don't know if there's really a fair cultural equivalent. I would say that it would be similar to the lowliness of being a dishwasher at a workplace. But the reality is, is that all of you today will probably, I hope, go home and wash your own dishes. You may have a dishwasher machine, but you don't expect someone else to do that. But yet, in most respecting cultural settings, nobody washed someone else's feet. And certainly, they didn't even wash their own. They expected someone else to do that. Perhaps, in some cases, a student would wash the feet of their rabbi. Sometimes. Maybe in some homes, a child would wash the feet of the household guests. Though women were not very well respected in that day, they wouldn't even wash feet. A Gentile slave maybe would do this chore, but never, ever, ever would a rabbi wash the feet of his followers, much less a rabbi who in verse number three has all authority from God, who came from God and was going back to God, who would describe himself as their master And their Lord, in verse number 13, never, ever would that guy wash someone else's feet. Dignified middle-class people, maybe on an off day would wash their own feet, but they would never wash someone else's feet. Now, why is John recording all of this? Why is Jesus doing this? Well, the rest of the passage tells us that Jesus is trying to show us two different things. Simultaneously, this picture of washing one another's feet is a picture of cleansing sin, and it's a pattern of humble service. And that's what verses 6 through 11 begin to describe for us, that Jesus is picturing the cleansing act of dying on the cross for sins. Now, engage with the story with me a little bit, because this might be new information to you, but it really is Jesus' first point that he's trying to make to his disciples. Because naturally, you know, you ever been in a room where someone volunteered to do something before you could do it and you kind of felt guilty about it? Like, I probably should have volunteered and stepped up to the plate and done that before that person felt like they had to do it. That's how all these disciples felt. I mean, I know that I just told you that culturally speaking, nobody should be washing feet in this room. They should be having their feet washed. But everyone is sitting down to eat and they're thinking, where's the, my feet are nasty. Where's the servant? I mean, Peter, you guys are supposed to get this upper room settled. Did you not figure out the servant situation? Uh, Hello? Anyone around? You ever sat at a table at a restaurant and be like, where's my waiter at? Some of you might have that experience this afternoon. They're probably thinking that. Where's the servant? My feet are disgusting. I've been traveling all day. Don't you know I've been doing ministry? And everybody's got that in their mind, but nobody gets up to wash feet. The person who gets up to do it is Jesus. I imagine that an awkward silence fell in the room as Jesus one by one goes around. Can you picture it? He takes off his robe, which was indicative of his status as a rabbi. He puts on, I don't know, maybe the servant left it there. This towel, this apron much like you might see in the back kitchen of a restaurant. And one by one, Jesus gets a basin of water, the towel that's on him, so the dirt's getting on him. Picture that act of washing feet. Y'all, I don't even like touching my own feet. (laughs) You know what I mean? Let alone having to touch someone else's you realize they didn't wear you know, Nike sneakers back in the day, right? They didn't wear work boots. They wore open-toed shoes and they walked on dusty, dirty roads. If you're gonna do the job right, you're gonna be scrubbing with your fingers in the crevices between another man's toes. And the person who's doing this is their savior. So it's a little awkward. I thought about, but I chickened out washing somebody's feet today because it might make you feel about as awkward as they felt. Now, everyone deals with awkwardness a little bit differently, don't they? You know, some people just ignore it. And some people like to just come right out and talk about it. Well, as you could guess, which disciple is going to be the guy who's going to say something in this awkward moment? Well, it's Peter. Duh. And so as Jesus goes around the table, I'm assuming Peter's not the first guy to get his feet washed. Maybe he was a little bit upset about that. I don't know. But as Jesus is going around, he washes maybe John's feet. John was next to him. So maybe that's whom he started with. Or I don't know, maybe he started with Judas. But nonetheless, he makes around the table and he gets to Peter. And Peter, by the time this happens, he's he's figuring this out, that this is not how it should be. If anybody should be washing feet they should be washing Jesus' feet. So Peter, naturally probably thinking he's on to something, blurts out in verse number eight to Jesus, you ain't washing my feet. Now, I don't think that's because Peter wanted Jesus to respect his personal space. It's because Peter recognized that Jesus is not the guy who should have to do this. But then Jesus says something to Peter in verse number eight. That's interesting. He's speaking metaphorically. He says to Peter in verse number eight, if I don't wash you, you will not have an inheritance with me. Now we begin to realize at this moment at the end of verse number eight that Jesus is not talking about water and feet anymore. Think about this a little bit more deeply that the act that Jesus was doing was humiliating. I mean, think about it. Is there anything more shameful than a king doing the task of a slave? Is there anything more humiliating than the son of God doing the job that all the disciples should have been able to do themselves? Actually, I would say there is something. Perhaps the only thing worse than a king washing feet like a slave is a king dying the death of a despised criminal. And Jesus shows us that his washing of feet was a picture of the greater humiliation he would endure on the cross. I think Peter starts to get it in verse number 9. And you know, typical Peter, he overcorrects. He says, all right, Jesus, if I can't have an inheritance with you without you washing me, wash all of me, buddy. You're like, I mean, can you imagine being in that room? Like, come on, Peter. How often do the disciples say that? Peter, would you just shut your mouth, bro? He says, Jesus, if I need to be washed by you to be with you forever, go for it. Feet, hands, hands even my head. All right, Peter. You're missing the point just a little bit. Jesus isn't saying he needs to give you a bath. What Jesus is, re- is saying here is that the washing of his feet, it was pointing forward to just a few days from then when he would wash their sins away. Verse number 10 gives us a really profound statement about our atonement of our sins because of the blood of Jesus. Jesus says that those who are washed by him don't need to wash their feet because they are cleansed. It's an old kid James word, but it's good in every part. What Jesus is saying here is that when he would give them the real cleansing on the cross, that the, the act of suffering he would do on the cross would be so much greater an act of cleansing than this simple washing of their feet. Because those who would be washed by the blood of Jesus would not just be clean a little bit, but would have all of them clean. Yes, Peter, I'll wash your hands and your feet and your head, but it won't be with my hands and my towel and my basin. It will be with the blood that I shed for you on my cross. Jesus says that without accepting his sacrifice for your sins, you will not go with him to heaven. The way he says in verse eight, I believe, is you will have no part with me. And that's a terrifying reality, isn't it? I want so badly to be with Jesus, don't you? But as Jesus looked at this group of people, he had mixed feelings. Because as he looked at this group of 12 men, he knew some of them would receive his cleansing and would trust in his salvation and would be clean. Some of them are clean. But some of them weren't. Look at the end of verse number 10. Jesus says, you are clean, but not all. And verse 11 explains what he meant. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, you are not all clean. See, the truth is that while Jesus would pay for everybody to be cleansed, the truth is not everybody has been cleansed by Jesus. I wonder what Jesus would say if he sat down in our auditorium today. I worry that Jesus would look out on a mixed group the same way he did that day before his death. And he would recognize that there would be some in the room that partook of his sacrifice, that received his blood to cleanse their sins, but he would be concerned because there would be somebody, not the person out of the room, but the attender. Judas was there. Judas was serving. Judas attended the services. Judas had an elected role in the group as the treasurer. But yet Jesus would look at him and say, not all of you are clean." You see, being around the presence of other disciples is not always an indicator of you being in the presence of Jesus. Church family, I think we ought to recognize this morning that it's a fearful thing to be deceived about your status in Christ's kingdom simply because you are in fellowship with other disciples who will be in that kingdom. Your church membership won't get you to heaven. Your service in the church that we'll talk about today won't get you to heaven. Your saved parents or spouse won't get you to heaven and your good deeds won't get you to heaven. The only way that you can have part with Jesus is if you will trust in his cleansing for your sins and you will commit to him as your master and your Lord. Those two things are part of the same package. But for those of you here who are cleansed, who by the grace and the blood of Jesus have been washed, what does his act mean for you? Well, I told you earlier that Jesus, in this act of washing feet, he gives us a pattern for humbly serving one another. And in verses 12 through 17, Jesus explains that. And I think he gives us three different patterns. A pattern of humility, practicality, and happiness. Go back to humility Jesus gives us a pattern of humility. I want you to notice, look at verse number 14, that that Jesus isn't talking about serving your lost neighbor, though there's other places in the Bible that do that. Jesus isn't even talking about serving your spouse, though there are plenty of places where scripture talks about that. Jesus is specifically talking about the service of his disciples toward other disciples of Jesus. Look at verse number 14. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, look at the last phrase, don't ignore it, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This passage, this 12 through 17 verses, is specifically about serving other followers of Jesus in the local gathering of the church. And Jesus makes a stunning point that if service was not below the King of Kings, serving shouldn't be below you or me. Look at verse 13. You call me master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. But if I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I've done to you. And verse 16's a pretty strong word. He says, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Verse 16 is basically saying, who do you think you are to think that you're exempt from washing feet if I'm not exempt from washing feet? And I think what Jesus is teaching us this morning, that you may be here, and there are several of you who are wonderful, faithful, involved servants of this church. I I told one of our deacons this morning that I think serving, though it's not an area in which our church is perfect, I think it is a strength of our church. And so I I do want to say to some of you that, If you're here this morning and and you're involved eyeballs deep in ministry, you still have something to glean from this message, and it's this. That service, if it's going to be one that's pleasing to the master, it has to flow from the right mindset. Ministry begins with a mindset. And the mindset that if Jesus was not above humble service, neither am I. If Jesus was not too big to do this, neither am I. But for so many Christians in the culture, and perhaps in this church, I don't know. I don't see your heart or your mindsets. The reality is, is that church is approached with a very different mindset, isn't it? Church is approached with a mindset of receiving, a mindset of entitlement, a mindset of position, a mindset of meeting my needs. And it's no wonder that many churches across America have many unmet needs, and our church even still does, because there might be some church members who aren't willing to accept the mindset that serving might be their job. I want to challenge you this morning, whether you're involved in ministry or not, to recognize the truth that ministry not only flows from a proper mindset, this is really key, you might write it down. Ministry reinforces a proper mindset. Your actions not only flow from a place of understanding truth, but what you do teaches and trains you to live and believe those truths. Here's what I mean by that. Serving in a ministry is not just a product of humility, Serving in a ministry helps you stay humble. And that's why there's a lot of ways Christians serve the church periodically or here and there. And I don't want to denigrate any of that. I think all of that is a blessing. But I want to push every person in this church who's a Christian to challenge yourself to find a way to regularly, 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 Serve your church. Why? Because you don't need a reminder of humility once a quarter. You need a reminder of humility a lot. Me too, by the way. Jesus, in his example, gives us a pattern of humility. But you recognize this morning that humility is more than a mindset. Service is more than something that happens in the heart. Jesus gave us a pattern of practicality. I want you to recognize that Jesus did not express his culture defying humility in this passage by a highbrow spiritual sentiment. He didn't even express it with his feelings. Humility is not a feeling, it's an action. Jesus, even in this passage, though he would very soon, did not even express his humility through prayer or teaching. He took up a towel, he grabbed a dish of water, and he scrubbed dirty feet. Jesus addressed a need that was realistic and practical that served the whole group. I want you to recognize this morning, though we'll get to 1 Corinthians on Sunday night soon and talk about spiritual gifts, there, are, there is a place in ministry that you serve with no recognition of whether you're gifted to serve in that way or not. I hate to break it to you, but there's not a gift of washing dirty feet. There is no spiritual gift for that. No disciple could say, well, you know, Jesus, I'm sorry, I'm not gifted to do that. No, it was just a practical need. Everyone in the room was thinking, well, we, someone's gotta do this, so who's gonna do it? And Jesus gives us the example of stepping up putting on a towel, getting a basin of water, and saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it even though I don't have to. I'm going to step up and do it. And and what I want you to recognize this morning is that just as there were in that room 12 disciples who thought, I wonder who's going to take care of this need. There exists in this church many practical needs that serve the greater interests of the body of Christ and I, I just, as kindly as I can and pastorally as I can, I wanna to speak to those of you who are either uninvolved in regular ministry or underinvolved. If you're uninvolved, I think that the clear solution is to get involved. If you're underinvolved, I'll let the Spirit tell you whether or not you are. But I think every Christian in this church should regularly serve in a ministry unless you are physically incapable of it. I also wanna recognize that in your bulletin, you got a piece of paper that just lists four of them. You understand there's more ways to serve our church than that, right? I mean, I, there's like 20 other ways. There are ways people serve in this church that I would have never put on a up list because I wouldn't have even known it's a need, but yet people see it and they fill it, right? So I want you to understand that ministry is not confined to a piece of paper. You might say, Pastor Mike, there are realistic reasons why I can't do any of the things on that page. I would challenge you to come talk to me and I'd love to help you find a way to regularly serve our church that will allow you to express humility and reinforce humility and meet a practical need that the whole congregation has. But I've put in your bulletin four of these things because they are real needs in our church. And to varying degrees, we have a real need for more people to serve in these ways. And the first thing I put on that handout in your bulletin is the nursery ministry, which for us, we allow um, women uh, and their husbands, if they're serving with their wives, to serve in this ministry uh, of serving the nursery. And we have a nursery for two reasons. It's not a biblical requirement, but number one, I think it's a good thing for us to give parents the option to have a chance to fully listen to the message, don't you? And we recognize that kids are a blessing from the Lord, but they can be distracting. That's just who they are at age two. No biggie, no fault for them but we provide a space there so that their parents, um, if they want to put their kids there, can have a chance to more fully listen to the message. But number two, this is really important. It might be something you not, may not see about the nursery ministry. We have a nursery to start giving our children in our church a positive, age-appropriate exposure to church. The reality is, is that I could be the best preacher on planet Earth, You set a three-year-old in this auditorium. They're going to get nothing out of it. But you put them in the nursery, and we have resources there, and we're actually going to improve this part of the nursery ministry soon. And you read a Bible story to them in the nursery as a nursery worker, they might actually get something out of that. And as they get older, the age-appropriate experience changes until they graduate to sitting in a service like a normal person, a normal adult, right? And I'm just going to tell you, there is a huge logistical behind the scenes thing that goes into this nursery thing and there's not a single person who would be qualified to serve in this ministry that we don't need. If you would fit the mold of being able to serve in the nursery, which some of you do, some of you don't, right? No biggie. But if you do, you should be in there. Why? Because it's a need that serves the whole church. It's a practical need and I would encourage you to check that box, write your name on there. And you're not signing up for any ministry. What I want you to do, if you see a need here that you want to fill, turn that into the offering plate, and I just want to talk to you about it. No commitments. You're not signing your life away in a contract, okay? Chill out. I'm just asking you to consider signing up to serve in that ministry. Secondly on there, I have our lawn care ministry This is not restricted to men, but for whatever reason, men are the only ones who sign up. So men, if you're like, I can't serve in the nursery ministry, what do I do? Well, here's a good one. We have grass, and for whatever reason, God has chosen to bless us with a lot of rain. But you know what happens when there's a lot of rain? A lot of grass. And it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows, and it doesn't stop for us. And so we have men every Saturday, doesn't have to be on Saturday, it could be on a Friday who come and give about an hour-ish of their time to mow, trim, edge, and blow off the grass to keep our lawn looking nice. I really appreciate those of you who serve. It happened to be Sid Hodge this last week. All of you do a fantastic job. The grass looks amazing. I mean, our lawn is primo. The rain helps, but the guys also do as well. Man, this is a wonderful, and ladies, if you like doing this type of thing, it's a wonderful way for you to regularly serve in ministry. Another practical need that exists is if we're going to have a screen behind me that has the lyrics to the songs, which is what our church has done for several years, there's a practical need. Who's going to do that? That takes some work to make sure this thing is happening. And so there are people who show up every Sunday. We have three of them. I know all of them would praise God if one or two more people signed up for this ministry who show up actually at 9.15 a.m. There are people who fill this church at 9.15 a.m., and serve and go through all the slides with the music team and make sure that everything is in order because uh, it's a very rare occasion that anything goes wrong up here and that's because there are people who show up early and do the work to make sure it's met, that need is met. If you have a basic understanding of computers, this is a wonderful way for you to serve your church, a wonderful way. You don't have to be a computer expert. Trust me, Rick Waddle would tell you he would be the first one to admit he's not a computer expert, but he's been a huge blessing stepping up and doing that. On your page is a, a new ministry opportunity. It's the church supply ministry. If you're a behind the scenes person, you're here every Sunday, this is an easy way for you to serve a church. We have a coffee thing in the chapel and we've got a police break room now that police officers now are starting to use and that ha- is stocked with snacks. That's the way we minister to our police officers and you know, get them in the doors of our church to know that there's a church here that exists that love them. Um, but there's a practical need that comes with that somebody has to keep that restocked. And my wife and I happily did this for a long time when we first came, but we have about three or four more hats that we wear now than we used to. And so we, we wanna see a church member that will step up to the plate and who's a kind of a behind the scenes person, a position player that will meet this need. And um, I'm not expecting you to buy those supplies, but I'm, uh, we do need somebody who will stock those things and keep track of that. And then there's not one on your page, but I think all of you should consider Um, And you can even write this in at the bottom of your page. Signing up to volunteer to help with Family Fun Night next week on Thursday night. Um, Everybody can help there. There's a place for everybody. I'm not going to make you have some weird snack or eat some nasty thing to make kids laugh if that's not your personality. But if you want to dip your toe in the water of serving your church, that's a wonderful opportunity for you to experience the joy of ministry, I'd encourage you to write down at the bottom, family fun night or family night and sign up that way. Or you could sign up at the back table. I have good news for you, church family. We had 36 kids who signed up for the event prior to it last year. We've been advertising the event for two days and 37 people have already pre-registered to come to this event. 37 people who don't attend our church who will be at this event. Uh, 37 children and their families. Jesus also gives us one more pattern in this passage, and it's in verse 17. And I love, I love verse 17. It's a pattern for happiness. You know, you'd be tempted to think that washing feet would be kind of a, a downer. That if you serve your church, you're giving up something. You're sacrificing, you're, you're giving up, you're, you're, you know, you're being humble, you're putting yourself last. But what Jesus says is that the happiest people are the people who serve. And you know what? I've been in ministry just a little bit. I've experienced this to be true. The curmudgeons in the church often are the people who don't do anything. And I say that lovingly as your pastor. One way to practically increase your joy in the Lord is to regularly serve other people. It's so counterintuitive, isn't it? because we think we'll be happier when others serve us. But Jesus says, no, in my kingdom, you'll be happy when you serve others. Church, maybe you've served for many years and you're a faithful minister in our church or you're struggling with whether or not you should check that box and put your name on that paper. I just wanna remind you that Jesus says a promise here It's not the promise of scripture we often think of when we think of promises of God. But he says, if you know these things, happy are ye if you acknowledge them in your mind. Is that what he says? No, look at verse 17. He says, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. If you do them. Service is tangible and service is practical. Jesus recognized that. Paul actually exhorting the church to demonstrate humility and service to one another reflects on this similar thing. In Philippians 2, when he, when he writes this, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, That's our example. Jesus, like we should, thought of us, not himself, above all. Every head bowed and every